Hello, and welcome to Energy Central Insights, the official podcast of Energy Central. Located in New York City, I'm your host, Jason Price, Community Engagement Ambassador for Energy Central. Joining is my colleague, Matt Chester, Community Manager located in Orlando, Florida. Hi, Matt. Thanks, Jason. Really excited to kick off this podcast anew with you. Uh, we have so many great minds across energy, the Energy Central community that it's going to be terrific to have yet another avenue to share their insights and expertise with the wider utility industry. So uh, thanks for kicking this off, this new venture off with us, and let's get started. Agreed. It's my pleasure. So since 1995, Energy Central has been a trusted news and information source for professionals working in the power industry. Today, Energy Central is more than just a news source. Energy Central is a network of community groups focused on specific topics in the industry. Our managed communities are a place where professionals like you can come together to share, learn, and connect in a collaborative environment. We invite you to become a member if you haven't already and join over 200,000 other professionals working in the power industry. To join, visit www.energycentral.com and membership is free. For our listeners, welcome to our inaugural show and thank you for joining us. The Energy Central Insights format is simple. You, the Energy Central community, determine our guests based on the most popular, timely, and relevant articles posted by our community members. For anyone posting in the community, be prepared. You may be the next one asked to join us on the podcast stage to discuss your work, your ideas, and your perspective. So, who garnered the most interest to deserve the title as guest of honor for this maiden voyage? I feel privileged to introduce Dan Yerman. Dan has been a member of Energy Central for many years. He has over 930 posts, over 280 comments, and garnered over 450,000 views. He has indeed built a following on Energy Central, and he's also registered as part of the Energy Central's official network of experts. If you follow the nuclear energy industry or have come across a major nuclear energy infrastructure project in the U.S., Asia, Middle East, or Europe, then you likely have experienced the work of Dan Yerman. His career began in 1979 at the Environmental Protection Agency, then moved on to important positions at the Idaho National Lab, Bechtel, Rockwell Automation, and NASA. He is a prolific writer on Energy Central, as well as his own blog, Neutron Bytes, and that's Bytes, B-Y-T-E-S. Please welcome my guest, our first guest for Energy Central Insights, Dan Yerman. Uh, thank you very much, Jason, for that uh, very, very nice uh, uh, introduction. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Dan, before we dig into things, let me explain to our listeners what brought you to our attention. In good spirit to the holiday season, on November 14th, 2019, you published Dan's Idaho Nuclear Chili Recipe. The popularity of this article suggests that either this recipe is off the charts, perhaps gone nuclear, or we have a hungry readership on Energy Central, or both. Dan, tell us the inception of this recipe and why you think it garnered such popularity for our readers. Well, I developed the recipe in Idaho when I was working at the Idaho National Lab. I was there from 1989 to 2009. I worked out in the desert, and it gets pretty cold out there. Uh, I don't see zero from the high uh, from around the middle of December to the end of February. So you want hot stuff to eat, and uh, chili is a good place to start. Uh, everyone in Idaho has a chili recipe. There are competitions for it. Uh, I can't say that I've ever won any prizes for this, but a lot of people like it. And I've gotten a lot of comments over the year. The publication this year was the uh, 12th time 
Uh, I publish it annually that I've published it. And the basic reason that I've published it is that uh, by uh, by Saturday morning, uh, Thanksgiving weekend, you are literally fed up with turkey. So you want something different. And I always felt that chili was uh, just, just the thing. Uh, so I uh, developed this recipe over the years. People have provided ideas. I've added a few vegetables. Cooking with beer is a major uh, important uh, aspect of it. Um, and uh, getting uh, some of the vegetables in there and sauteing them just right so they're sweet and not bitter. Uh, and then just the right amount of heat. You know, the, uh, the interesting uh, metaphor here is that the railhead that goes to the Idaho National Lab from Blackfoot, Idaho, which is where the Union Pacific Spur comes up from Salt Lake City, is called Scoville. Now, the interesting thing is that the way you measure heat in terms of red pepper, which horse goes in chili, uh, is the Scoville scale. So um, this was a sort of a, a interesting uh, juxtaposition of the word Scoville. Uh, and uh, I decided that, uh, you know, Idaho nuclear chili would be the way to go. Now, the chili recipe is very clear that you would cease this to taste. And just because it's called nuclear chili doesn't mean that it's going to uh, be, uh, you know, white hot in terms of uh, its impact on your taste buds. It simply means that's the legacy of where it came from. It came from a nuclear engineering uh, site, which is where it was developed and where it was first cooked. So that's kind of the legacy. Love it. Great contribution. And I'm sure it's delicious. Uh, let's now pivot to the nuclear conversation to, and especially to your international experience. Energy is a global issue. And I'm sure our listeners would love to get a feel for your various types of projects around the globe and if you can share with us the customs and perceptions you encountered in various countries and how these may contrast with the attitudes of nuclear here in the United States. Well, I'm going to cover a couple of different countries. I'm going to talk about Japan, uh, France, uh, South Korea, uh, and then uh, the UK uh, as four examples because they're very, very different perspectives. If you say Japan and nuclear, first thing that comes to people's mind is Fukushima. Uh, because of the terrible tsunami and earthquake that uh, devastated uh, that part of the, the island in March of uh, 2011, and the nuclear uh, uh, reactor uh, problems that uh, were generated uh, by that. Uh, but that being said, the result of that is that Japan now imports about 90% of its nuclear, of its energy requirements, because it shut down all of its reactors following the Fukushima crisis in order to do safety reviews. It's been slowly restarting them. Um, uh, up until 2011, Japan generated about 30% of its electricity from reactors, and it was on track to take that number to 40% by 2017. Fukushima brought all that to an end. Since then, some reactors have restarted, and the plan now is by 2030 to get back up to uh, about 20%. Uh, percent. Uh, there are 37 reactors out of almost 50 that were originally uh, on the island that are operable. Uh, and the first two were restarted in October 2015. Seven more have been restarted since then. And there are another 17 that are in the process of uh, approval uh, process. And most of them will probably make it over a period of time. It's very slow going because <clears throat> one of the things that's unique to Japan in its culture is that local provincial uh, politically elected officials have a say over the restart of the reactors. Uh, the uh, community has to buy in. And there are a couple of places uh, where anti-nuclear sentiment is particularly strong. Uh, one in particular uh, is a province where there are seven nuclear reactors that are shut down. 
And uh, every provincial governor who's been elected in that province uh, since 2011 has been uh, swept into office on a uh, wave of anti-nuclear fervor. Whether those seven units will ever be restarted is a good question. Uh, TEPCO, which is the utility there, is hoping to restart the two most, uh, uh, the two newest reactors, and they may have uh, a shot at that. Uh, the other thing about Japan that's important to note since Fukushima is they've more or less, whether they like it or not, have de facto gotten out of the export business. Um, as you know, Toshiba sold off its stake in Westinghouse, uh, and Hitachi withdrew from the UK's Warsight project uh, because they couldn't come to terms over costs. Uh, and Mitsubishi pulled out of uh, Turkey's sign-up project. Uh, and then uh, a few years ago, Vietnam uh, canceled the plan for uh, Japanese firms to build four reactors there. So Japan's uh, export business has uh, uh, contracted very significantly. Uh, whether they're going to rebuild it or how they're going to rebuild it uh, remains to be seen. Uh, shifting to France, uh, France, as you know, uh, gets about uh, three quarters of its electricity from nuclear energy. Uh, but the government, uh, successive governments, I might add, have uh, established a policy of reducing this to 50% by 2035. And they've backed off of that a little bit uh, because uh, they don't have an alternative. Uh, the alternative would be coal. Uh, the, uh, they don't have large deposits of natural gas. They'd have to buy it from somebody. Um, and uh, they uh, uh, now know that uh, nuclear energy is a, uh, as a core competence, if you will, of, of the economy uh, is uh, something that they have to keep around. Uh, that said, uh, uh, what's going on now is that the French state-owned corporation, EDF, which took over from Ariva, is completing two first-of-a-kind 1,600-megawatt uh, pressurized water reactors, or PWRs, uh, one in Finland and the other in France. Uh, as first-of-a-kind units, uh, they are over budget and behind the curve. Uh, and EDF knows if they're going to build any more of them, they have to deliver on time and within budget. And they have proposed to the French government, uh, because they are state-owned, uh, to build six of these uh, units between now and 2050 uh, and to bring them in uh, at cost and, and on schedule. Uh, Export-wise, uh, EDF uh, did complete two of these 1,600 megawatt units in China. Those units are now operational and in revenue service. Uh, uh, however, plans to build uh, six more of these in uh, India have stalled, uh, primarily NPCIL, which is the Indian state-owned nuclear power. Corporation has balked at the cost uh, and instead has uh, committed to building 700 megawatt uh, can-do type reactors. Uh, heavy water reactors, that is, uh, because uh, they don't require reactor pressure vessels and the Indian uh, heavy industries can fabricate all the components locally. So I think uh, it would be uh, dim prospects, I think, for uh, EDF to ever build those six units in India. But the Indian uh, corporation is going ahead with the 700 megawatt indigenous units, and I think they will build at least 10 of them over the next decade. Uh, South Korea is uh, a mix bag. They have 24 reactors that provide one-third of South Korea's electricity. Uh, it's one of the world's most prominent nuclear energy country, and it's been successful with exports. It's currently building uh, four nuclear reactors in the United Arab Emirates under a $20 billion contract. Uh, the interesting thing about this is the contract didn't have coattails because uh, 
the UAE uh, contracted with uh, the Russian Nuclear Fuel Corporation uh, for uh, fuel for the plants, and they didn't go back to South Korea for it. Uh, there's also an ongoing debate in South Korea over the future of nuclear energy domestically. The current president, uh, elected in 2017, has proposed to phase out nuclear energy over the next 45 years. Uh, of course, he'll be long gone by the time that deadline comes around. Uh, and the project has not, that plan has not gone smoothly because there is a lot of support for nuclear energy because it generates a lot of jobs. There's a huge supply chain in uh, South Korea for uh, the nuclear industry. There's a lot of jobs associated with it. You take away the industry, you're taking away those jobs. So uh, remains to be seen how well the uh, anti-nuclear policy will work out or whether a future administration will say, nope, we're going to stay with nuclear. Have to see. Um, South Korea wants to develop advanced reactors. They also have uh, been working with Saudi Arabia on a so-called smart reactor, a 300 megawatt small modular reactor that the Saudis propose to build and uh, deploy for desalinization of, of water that may come to pass at some point in the future. Um, uh, they also would like to get involved in reprocessing their fuel, uh, but the U.S. has balked at that plan because it's not compatible with the uh, 123 agreement that South uh, Korea has with the U.S. under the Atomic Energy Act. That's still to be negotiated. The door is open, but I'm not sure that any progress is being uh, made there. The U.K. has 15 reactors uh, generating around 21% of its electricity. But the main thing that the U.K. is facing is two major challenges. The first is about half of these reactors will reach the end of their service lives in about uh, six years. And the other is for a number of a uh, long time, the UK has been depending on oil and gas from the North Sea. Eventually, that resource runs out. So the UK has gone back to nuclear and has a, a plan, which has had some difficulty getting launched, uh, to build 16 reactors approximately for around 19 gigawatts of uh, electricity uh, over the next several decades. Uh, the problem has been funding that vision. Um, the first two reactors uh, are... Uh, EDF is building uh, 1,600 megawatt units at Hinkley Point. That's underway. Ground is broken. Concrete's been poured. And uh, they're on their way to uh, getting those two reactors built. But several other projects uh, have been stalled because the UK didn't have a good way of doing two things. First, figuring out how to de-risk the project financially. And second, how to get the money to pay for them. Uh, which is why Hitachi walked away from the uh, Moorside project, which originally was uh, going to be built by another company. Uh, the, the, the net of all this is that the UK is coming back with a new financial plan uh, that they've used for other large uh, uh, infrastructure projects. And they're thinking that uh, uh, this might uh, provide certainty uh, for uh, a company building the reactors, that they would be fully funded. Uh, and that they wouldn't lose their shirts in the process of uh, either building or running the plant. And hopefully, if that uh, plan is approved by the government, uh, it'll bring back Moorside and uh, a number of other projects uh, and get going. The UK is also starting to look at small modular reactors. Uh, Rolls-Royce just announced they're going to build a mid-sized reactor, much larger than uh, SMRs. But a number of uh, uh, other firms have gone over there, including the U.S. New Scale has opened a uh, an office in the UK hoping to sell their 50 uh, megawatt uh, uh, SMR uh, there. So and that may be a cost-effective solution for some parts of the UK uh, is build these out uh, 50 or 60 megawatts at a time rather than building 1,000 megawatts at one time. Uh, but the UK is, is still committed to nuclear 
And then they really don't have a choice uh, because they're losing their other capacity. So they're going forward. That's kind of a quick look at some of the highlights in the international area. Dan, I'm, I'm going to go back to your, your recipe and maybe make a bit of a stretch of an analogy here. You know, so while Idaho nuclear has its chili, I, you know, I'd like to imagine each of those other countries you talked about have their own legendary recipes within the nuclear industry. But of course, different cultures and different peoples have their own unique taste buds. So the analogy I'll make is similarly, different cultures might have their own attitudes towards nuclear energy. And so you gave us a good overview there of the differences among those select nations in policymaking and in the utility industry when it comes to nuclear. Um, but as you seek to dispel you know, information or fear about nuclear energy to the public, you know, is there any way in which those different nations' cultures perhaps come into play? Um, I think so. First of all, uh, government support needs to be steady across administrations. Uh, the nuclear industry to build a reactor uh, from the day you say, let's go to the day it's a revenue service, uh, probably exceeds the election cycle of any of these countries in terms of prime ministers or presidents or parliaments or uh, congresses. And the thing that uh, the uh, nuclear industry probably uh, makes them the most nervous is that you get these sudden swings in uh, uh, policy about nuclear. And meanwhile, you got billions of dollars invested in a project. All of a sudden, the government turns it into a white elephant. Uh, so you've got to have uh, a steady commitment. Uh, a few years ago at the Idaho National Lab, the, uh, uh, John Grossenbacher, who was the director, his former Navy admiral, and knows something about nuclear submarines and nuclear energy in general, said that nuclear energy is a 100-year proposition. And if you think about it, he's right, because right now, a couple of uh, uh, nuclear reactors in the United States are going in for a new round of license renewals, which will take their service lives to 80 years. Uh, and this is, is clearly within his, his idea of it. So if you're building a nuclear power plant in the UK right now, you have a minimum 60-year uh, service life for that. It's 20. Uh, 19 right now, you're talking 2079 when you get to the decision of whether you're not you're going to go for the 20 years. And now you're at 2099 when you're ready to decommission. That's a 100 year cycle. And you need we don't think in those kinds of terms as Western civilization. And we we probably need to because uh, this is the whole concept of sustainability. You're going to decarbonize both the electricity sector and the process heat sector. Uh, uh, by 2050 or thereabouts, you have to have this kind of long-range thinking, and the government has to commit to it. The second thing you need is financing. You need financial mechanisms that uh, don't rely entirely on the private sector. The private sector just cannot mobilize the kind of money that you need to build these things, either 50 megawatts at a time or 1,000 megawatts at a time. The government needs to backstop it with two things. First of all, loan guarantees. And the second thing is rate guarantees, because once you build it, you've got to be able to sell the electricity and not be undercut by wild swings in a merchant environment. So those are the fundamental success factors that go across any of these countries. They all have that in common. Dan, to keep the conversation going further regarding this topic, this specific topic, I'm going to serve as the contrarian here. If each country invested in, its, in upgrading its transmission and distribution lines and put more attention behind the renewable market uh, energy mix. Is there really a future for nuclear? And where do you stand on that? 
Well, absolutely, it's a future for nuclear because the number one thing as a grid operator you want is to keep your grid stable. Uh, the problem is when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow, there's no electricity coming from those plants. So what do you do to keep the lines up? Well, you need what is called baseload power, and that's what you get from a gas plant or a coal plant, and you also get it from a nuclear power plant. So uh, there's an obvious opportunity for uh, partnerships uh, between uh, the nuclear industry and the solar and wind industry, and even co-location of plants. Uh, because if you're going to put in a, a switch station uh, for a nuclear power plant, why not put solar and wind next to it to take advantage of the same grid infrastructure? Uh, so that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, a lot of people want to know if uh, nuclear power plants can do load following the way gas plants are. Well, yes and no. It depends on the design of the reactor. But there's another way for that reactor to utilize being run at 100% capacity, and that's to generate hydrogen. Hydrogen, I think, is going to be the fuel of the uh, decarbonization cycle because when you burn it, you get water vapor. You don't get CO2. Uh, and I foresee a future uh, where, for instance, the transportation sector might be changed as a result of hybrid vehicles that burn hydrogen the way uh, hybrid vehicles burn gasoline today. And then that moves forward, powers a generator, which turns uh, charges a battery, and then you stop burning the hydrogen. Of course, we have to uh, do a lot with uh, fueling infrastructure and design and a whole lot of other things. But uh, uh, basically, uh, you can get a lot of hydrogen uh, from uh, a nuclear reactor, and all that electricity can be used and that heat can be used to generate it if solar and wind are on the grid, you don't need as much juice coming from the uh, reactor. And so you can divert its power to making hydrogen. So it's a natural partnership in two ways. Uh, the first is where the reactor could do load following. Of course, that's a partnership uh, on the grid. And the second thing is where um, it's more feasible to shift the reactor's power to doing something else, making process heat uh, or uh, hydrogen uh, or other uh, possibilities like desalinization. Uh, because the grid is now being fed by renewables, that's a partnership too. So there's plenty of win-win opportunities out there. It's been my understanding that integrated molten salt reactors, although not a new technology, in fact, I believe it dates back to the 1960s and is one that runs on a small scale at Oak Ridge National Lab. Uh, this is becoming, this is garnering more media attention. I believe that uh, Bill Gates and others have invested in this uh, this technology. Can you explain to our listeners what is a molten salt reactor and well, could this be a possibility of the future? Yes, it can be. Uh, uh, molten salt was originally developed at the Oak Ridge National Lab and reactors were run successfully using this technology there in the 50s and 60s. A molten salt reactor involves uh, taking a salt solution, uh, either chloride or fluoride, um, uh, lithium's uh, also sometimes in the mix, uh, uh, and uh, you, uh, the fuel, usually you, at this point, uh, the, the preferred fuel is a uranium fuel, uh, low enriched fuel that is less than 20% U-235, uh, is in the salt itself. Uh, you use, uh, uh, basically, you're still going to have uh, control rods to, to mediate the uh, reaction, but the primary loop is liquid fuel salt. That primary loop, in turn, has embedded in it a secondary coolant loop, which is not radioactive, uh, which then transfers the heat from, there's no contact, by the way, between the primary salt and the secondary loop. They're, they're isolated from each other physically in terms of the way the piping is done. Uh, uh, so that transfers the heat out of the reactor 
two uh, uh, turbines, uh, which uh, can in turn do one or two things. You can make steam, which is kind of old school, or you could have an industrial solar salt loop running around 600 degrees C, which could drive power generation, could drive thermal storage, or could drive uh, process heat. And a number of the developers like Terrestrial Energy and also the molten chloride reactor being developed by TerraPower involve all three uh, outputs uh, from it. The second kind of uh, molten salt reactor doesn't have molten salt in the primary reactor pressure vessel. The primary reactor vessel is a high temperature gas cooled reactor using triso fuel. Those are otherwise known as a pebble bed reactor. The uh, helium is the primary gas that's inside of it that comes out of uh, the reactor uh, goes to a, a, a secondary loop of salt, and the salt is a very effective heat transfer mechanism. Again, the solar salt that you see at some of the solar installations is a very effective heat transfer mechanism. And that in turn drives the kinds of outputs that I mentioned earlier, which is power generation, um, thermal storage, and, and, and process heat. So you have two different approaches to it. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, although I have no relationship with terrestrial energy, their website has some great graphics on it. And if you want to see how one of these things work, just uh, go on over there and take a look. Well, I'm fully confident that this conversation will continue on Energy Central uh, and as well as the chili recipe that you had posted. Uh, Dan, I really want to thank you. And uh, on behalf of uh, all of Energy Central, I want to thank you for your generous time and insight today. Uh, Dan, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to reach you? Um, well, uh, let's see. I have a Twitter feed uh, with my name on it. My blog, if you go to my uh, blog under the About uh, tag on the main menu, uh, there's contact information there. Uh, and all you should just click on it and you, you get an email address or phone number. Uh, so if uh, you have a question uh, or a comment, uh, happy to hear either. That sounds great, Dan. Thank you very much. In our next podcast, we'll go water skiing with Winston Churchill. No, not exactly, but this headline by Lincoln Blevins, Assistant General Manager of Power Supply for Burbank Water and Power, captured lots of attention. Here, Lincoln critique leadership at our utilities. It'll be great, and you won't get wet. I also want to thank the following contributing partners of Energy Central. ESRI, the Environmental System Research Institute. ESRI is the international supplier of geographic information system software, WebGIS, and geodatabase management applications. To Navigant Research, a premier market research and advisory firm covering the global energy transformation. To Oracle Utilities, providing best-in-class utilities management solutions to improve reliability, service, and safety for electric, water, and natural gas companies. Atonix Digital, a Black & Veatch company. Atonix Digital Software helps companies simplify asset performance management by putting data to work. And lastly, Bentley Systems is a software development company that supports the professional needs of those responsible for creating and managing the world's infrastructure, including roads, bridges, airports, skyscrapers, industrial and power plants, as well as utility networks. Once again, I'm your host, Jason Price, along with my colleague, Matt Chester. Stay plugged into the discussion by joining the community at energycentral.com and see you next time on the podcast at Energy Central Insights. <laughs>